0: Let's pray. Lord we do thank you for your goodness, and we thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy and for your word. And for Lord we we don't count it lightly that there are men like Jeremiah that have gone before us. So faithful. So remarkably faithful. That just by their very lives They demonstrate for us the fact that it is possible to be faithful during hostile days. And so, Lord, we take comfort in that, and we thank you for all you do in our lives, and we ask that your word would speak to our hearts now for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Turn, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 8. Lord willing, we'll read 8 and 9 this morning. Jeremiah chapter 8. As a reminder, Jeremiah is a prophet in the southern kingdom of Judah. He was sent there by God to uh, basically warn the children of Israel in the southern kingdom. During the last, check this out, to kind of get our heads around this, during the last 40 years, 40 not 14, 40 years before the demise of the nation of Judah. All right? And uh, they will fall to the nation of Babylon. We've talked about this in the past. And uh, during those 40 years, there's not one recorded convert to Jeremiah's ministry. Which begs several questions. As a matter of introduction and just kind of getting our heads in the in the mindset. Number one, in terms of Jeremiah's ministry, how many of us would persevere faithfully for 40 years with no visible quote unquote response from anybody? Right? I'd call that faithful. And 1 Corinthians chapter 4 tells us, moreover, it's required in stewards that one be found faithful. It doesn't say that one be found successful or that one be found popular, or that one be found uh, effective by any worldly standards, but one be found faithful. Jeremiah was a faithful man, and we have the opportunity to be faithful men and women. And we have the example of somebody like Jeremiah, who didn't measure himself according to success, he measured himself according to obedience to God's Word. Faithfully, And that's how we are to measure our own lives of ministry. We're all ministers, by the way. If you're a Christian, you're a minister. And I'm no more of a minister than you are, and you're no more of a minister than I am. We're all ministers. It is how it is. And so we're all ministers. We're all stewards of the life we've been given, of the salvation we've been given, and all of that, and we are to live it out faithfully and obediently. So that's number one point, right? Number two point. Jeremiah's in the last 40 years of the, of the nation of Judah as, as they knew it, right? Now a couple of years into Jeremiah's ministry, you might have said is the nation going to go down in 38 years? I mean that's what the bulk of this book is talking about, right? Jeremiah says we're going down, the ship is sinking. And everybody else is saying peace, peace when there is no peace, right? And you have to Again, we've talked about observation, interpretation, application. When we consider the application, 40 years to me seems like a long time, right? Forty years from now, I hope I'm standing here talking at the age of 89, right, on a Sunday morning. Maybe, maybe not. But you have to ask the question, I think, in terms of application. Could it be that the rapture of the church would happen within the next 40 years? think we would all say could be could be could it be that uh, America maybe won't be conquered by Babylonians but it could it be that America would fall in some way over the next 40 years to which you say wait a minute that doesn't sound very patriotic and we all grew up learning that we're supposed to be patriotic right What's the first thing you did at every, uh, every? What is the first thing you did every day in public school? Pledge of Allegiance. Why? To teach you memorization skills. No. So we would all grow up and be patriotic, right? And it was. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I was telling somebody recently. in Terms of this virus, which, not bad. Took me three minutes to get around to talking about the virus. So. I'm a little slow today, but uh, I was telling somebody recently, my problem is I don't really trust the government as we know it today, I really don't trust the media as we know it today, I really don't trust big pharma as we know it today, and I really don't trust healthcare experts as we know them today, but I'm not a, I'm not a cynic. That's my problem. Uh, but anyway... I don't, know if Ameri- I don't know what's going to happen to America over the next 40 years, but here's what I do know. We are in a moral decline, very clearly, and I'll say it on record. We're in a very clear moral decline, and if you look at history, and if we learn the lessons of history, which is what we're doing this morning, historically, the nation of Judah was on a moral decline. And they met their demise because of that moral decline. So, to that I say, we draw whatever conclusions the Lord would have us draw, right? I'm not saying America's going down 40 years from now. I'm not saying Jesus is coming back within the next 40 years. I'm saying those are very reasonable conclusions to draw. And so, where does that place us today? I like this. Let's say let's say America is going down. Let's say the rapture of the church is going to happen. What should that do in our lives today? It should cause us to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. What would happen if these things are not true and America is not going down in the next 40 years and the rapture of the church is not going to happen in the next 40 years? What should we then do? We should keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Right? And so we can in our own minds, draw whatever, whatever application we want to draw from these pages. But the reality is, as it affects our lives, I, I frankly kind of like these times in this. I think people are waking up. And I like that. And so, chapter 8, verse 1. At that time, says the Lord, and let me back up. Sorry. In chapter 7, Jeremiah started a series of of sort of uh, prophecies um, from the temple steps. And we talked about this a little bit last week. You know, he's standing on the temple steps. Probably would have been, uh, many commentators say, during one of the great feasts uh, was a lot of this. So, you know, mobs of people coming into the temple. A very religious culture, by the way, very religious. Mobs of people coming in, and there's Jeremiah standing on the steps. Nobody, Nobody giving heed to his words, but these are his words. And he started it last week, or in chapter eight we read last, or chapter 7 we read last week, and he kind of carries this on. So he says, at that time, says the Lord, they shall bring out the bones of the kings of Judah, and the bones of its princes, and the bones of its priests, and the bones of the prophets, and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, out of their graves. And they shall spread them before the sun, and the moon, and the, all the hosts of heaven, which they have loved, and which they have served, and after which they have walked, which they have sought, and which they have worshipped. They shall not be gathered nor buried. They shall be like refuse on the face of the earth. Then death shall be chosen rather than life by all the residue of those who remain of this evil family, who remain in all the places where I have driven them, says the Lord of hosts. Now that's a little pick-me-up, isn't it? <laughs> right? Thank God we don't say amen, and that's the end of it, right? Yeah have lunch but the reality is these people have been worshiping uh you know all the all the 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 paganism and all the the astrology and all of this kind of stuff and and they've been doing this for now for generations and he's just saying you know the time's going to come when the babylonians are going to come they're going to literally dig up those graves and let the bones like lay out and let see if the sun and the moon and the stars can Fix them, right, and so you pick you got a picture, particularly in the Jewish context, right a proper burial was a big deal, yeah. and you remember like the ultimate uh, I always think of Jezebel um, you know well, she did not have a proper burial We'll just say that okay and and, and the idea of a of a of this kind of thing of like spreading your bones out to basically bake in the sun is just horrific. And so Jeremiah is just telling the reality of what's going to happen as a result of their moral decline. And that's the state that they're in. So the Babylonians are going to desecrate the graves before the sun and the moon, all the hosts of heaven. And Again, as we've emphasized many times before, in the midst of something so seemingly harsh. Keep in mind the motive behind this, because we have, to cons- we have to keep in mind the heart of God in the context of all Scripture. God is supremely motivated by what? Love. Does this sound like love? Well, it is love if he's warning his children, right? If he's saying, hey, you guys are okay, you could. You just keep orchestrating those sun and the moon and the stars and make a little room for me in there. That'd be awesome. That would not be love. To not warn someone of imminent danger is not love. To warn someone of imminent danger is love. And so God is motivated by love. We've got to keep that in mind because I could read those verses and you could say, wow, God is over the top. Well, He is over the top motivated by love. But warning comes, judgment must come because God is just. But warning comes prior. Moreover, you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, will they fall and not rise? Will one turn away and not return? Why has this people slidden back Jerusalem in a perpetual backsliding? They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. Now, what normally happens when a person falls? You're walking down the street. You trip over the curb and you fall. What do you generally do? You get up right? These people don't. They don't get up. Why will they fall and not rise? Instead of getting up, they're in a uh, perpetual backsliding, he says. They don't get up morally, spiritually, as a culture, and as as the bulk of these individuals. They don't get up. It's illogical. And I just want to call attention to the fact that oftentimes, when we get our eyes off of Jesus, when we get our eyes off of His Word, we begin to think and live in a way that is biblically illogical. And you... Check me on this. You live and think biblically for a period of years, I think of many of you, for a period of decades. And then you look at what's going on in the world of... uh, 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 folks will say that have not lived according to the word and you say that's crazy that's crazy thought processes and this is what Jeremiah is is wrestling with he says in verse 6 I listened and heard but they did not speak aright no man repented of his wickedness saying what have I done everyone turned to his own course as the horse rushes into battle now you may recall a few weeks ago I think it was about three or four weeks ago we talked a little bit about, you know, when Jesus, and, I, and we read it again here, I think I read it this morning, uh, when Jesus says, hey, one of you is going to betray me. Remember that? And all the disciples said, is it, could it be me? Could it be me? It's a healthy question to ask, could it be me? Right? You know, when somebody, when, when, when somebody struggles, or somebody does fall, or somebody has a... a A backsliding or whatever. Shame on us, and let me just tell you shame on us if we say, Oh, that never happened to me. Oh, that'll never happen to me. And let me just say, What's Galatians tell us? Take heed lest you fall. Take heed lest you fall. And so, what he's saying here is these people never say, What have I done? They don't know how to repent. They don't know how to turn back. They don't know how to get back up. And if we can do those simple things, let me just tell you this. I am convinced, wholeheartedly convinced, God doesn't expect us to be perfect. God doesn't expect us to have conquered that bad attitude. God doesn't expect us you know, to, to be squeaky clean and, and all of that kind of stuff. But I'll tell you this. God expects us to be able to repent. God expects us to be able to say, I was wrong. What have I done? What, what have I done? Not like, hey, what have I done? What have I done? Like, you ever have that moment where you've done something stupid or you've said something stupid? And you feel like, oh, man, what did I do? It's like you're, like you'd love to take that back right? I mean, we all know that. That's the person the Lord can work on. That's called being teachable. And these people were not teachable. Instead of being teachable, what were they like? I love, the, I love some of these images that Jeremiah has, or some of these descriptions. What were they like? They were like a horse rushing into battle, right? You picture like, you know, whatever your cavalry movie scene thing is in your mind. A, a horse just rushing into battle. Does the horse kind of cautiously say "Mm, let's see which is the safest part of the battle does the horse do that no the horse just goes headstrong straight into the battle into the worst of the danger and you know is super vulnerable that way verse 7 even the stork in the heavens knows her appointed times and the turtle dove the swift and the swallow observe the time of their coming but my people do not know the judgment of the lord so even migratory birds know where to go and how to go and when to go right But a stubborn human being who doesn't know how to repent, who doesn't know how to say, Lord, show me and try me and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me me in the way everlasting. The person that doesn't know how to do that is dumber than a migratory bird, right? Well, how can you say we are wise, verse 8? And the law of the Lord is with us. Look, the false pen of the scribe certainly works falsehood. The wise men are ashamed. They are dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom do they have? Notice here, we're going to use the word wise. How can you say we are wise? Look, the false pen of the scribe certainly works falsehood. The wise men are ashamed. They are dismayed and they're taken. They have rejected the word of the Lord. These are wise men. Jeremiah's calling them. They're worldly wise. You see, there's worldly wisdom and there's biblical wisdom. There's worldly wisdom and there's biblical wisdom. This is critical for our understanding. Because worldly wisdom... Now, sometimes, worldly wisdom sort of fits with biblical wisdom, right? You know, if you... uh, if you call Dave Ramsey, right, he'll probably give you some worldly wisdom that also happens to be biblical. That's okay, right? There's some worldly wisdom that, biblical wisdom, that, that fits into the context of biblical, biblical wisdom. But there's some that doesn't. There's a lot that doesn't. Well, how can we discern that? How can we discern that? How can you discern worldly wisdom from biblical wisdom? Here's the only way. Know your Bible. Know your Bible and then test whatever that world of wisdom is against that. And uh, you'll find very often uh, they're in contradiction. These people, it says, behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. If you reject the word of the Lord, you will fundamentally at the core of your being, be without wisdom. You'll be without wisdom. The New Testament gives us a corollary of that, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Paul says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. You think about this. In terms of you know we're used to you know we know the Christian talk we know the gospel message you know it's kind of you know it, it it fits into our mental thinking that Jesus died on a cross rose from the dead to the living he died to pay the price for our sin that we've we know that well enough that that makes sense to us but imagine somebody that doesn't like wait a minute you're God got killed because gods are supposed to be powerful right the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it's the power of god for it is written i will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent where's the wise where's the scribe where is the disputer of this age has god not made has not god made foolish the wisdom of this world For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than man. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Right? There's worldly wisdom and there's biblical wisdom. They are two different things. And look, I love what Jeremiah says. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord, so what wisdom do they have? What wisdom is there apart from the word of the Lord? None. What wisdom is there apart from the word of the Lord? If we reject the word of the Lord... We reject wisdom. And let me just say this, in terms of our, our own nation, in the context of our own moral decline, there is a, there is a worldly wisdom, there's a, there's, a, there's a narrative out there that, that declares its own wisdom. And because it is steeped in the context of moral decline, it is fundamentally not wisdom. And here's what we have to get used to. We have to get used to feeling like Jeremiah a little bit. We, get, we have to get used to feeling all alone a little bit. We have to get used to feeling like, does anybody get it? You ever feel like that? Does anybody get it? You have to get used to going against the flow, right? What happens when worldly wisdom has a narrative? And thankfully, you know, thanks to technology, they've got a loud narrative. They've got a lot of volume to their narrative. And they, and, and it's like fish going downstream. And we've got to be the fish that swims opposite the flow. We've got to be. Get used to the idea that we're going to be going against the flow. And guess what happens if our nation continues in a moral decline? Then the current gets stronger. And the aloneness feels heavier. Right? But... And I believe with all my heart, it gets to the point, and it can get to the point, and it does get to the point, and many of us experience this from time to time, that you feel like, man, it's tiring. It's tiring. And it's lonely. And it's hard. And it requires, check this, supernatural strength. And you're right. To that I would say, you're right, it does. And... It's only by the power of the Holy Spirit, I think, that we can sustain during times like this. And you know what? That's a good place to be. That's a good place to be. Because I'm, in my mind, you know, sometimes I can think, eh, I, can, I can maneuver this situation. <laughs> I'm pretty clever, right? You ever think that? Yeah. Or just me? Yeah. Yep, okay, good. My wife never thinks that. She just says, whatever you say, honey. And I say, that's that's pretty wise on your part because I'm a pretty clever guy. So, you know, I think I'm pretty clever. I think I'm pretty capable. I think I can kind of maneuver. I think I can kind of make it happen. Right? But the more current flows in my face, the more frail I realize I am. The more inadequate I realize I am. The more I have to see Jesus, if you will, at the top of the current and just like fix my eyes on Him. I love what Hebrews says. Fix my eyes on Him. And only by the power of the Holy Spirit and not by my own strength, or as we'll read at the end of chapter 9, not by my might, not by my wisdom, not by my riches, not by anything in me am I able to... Go against that current, only by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's a good place to be. That's where Jeremiah was. That's where I think we're finding ourselves. And we need not be weary. Galatians says, don't grow weary in doing good. If he tells us don't grow weary, that means it's possible to not grow weary. Because that's what he told us to do. He wouldn't tell us something that's impossible. So, Apart from the wisdom, apart from the word of the Lord, what wisdom do they have? That's a brilliant question. Verse 10, therefore, I'll give their wives to others and their fields to those who will inherit them because from the least even to the greatest, everyone is given to covetousness. From the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. And so, you know, again, there's going to be a lot of destruction. Men are literally going to see their wives carried off by Babylonians. I can't think of anything more horrible. I mean, honestly, in many ways, that'd be worse than death. Watch your wife just carry it. Can you imagine that, men? Watch your wife just carry it off. Like, they carry you one way, they carry her another way. Amazing. And why? Because even from the least, even to the greatest, everyone is given to covetousness. Now, We're talking about, help me with this, help me if I'm the only one. We're talking about, like, digging up men's bones and leaving them out in the sun to dry. We're talking about Babylonians coming in and invading. We're talking about incredible destruction that's going to come. And we're talking about the moral decline that leads up to that. And he says, because everyone's given to covetousness. Is it just me? Or do I think, covetous seems kind of tame in the list of sins. Just me? All right, three of us. Thank you. And two of them are related to me. (laughs) I like hanging around people that think like I do. It makes life easier, right? Covetousness. It's not like murder. Covetousness. And here's the point I think he wants us, to, wants us to get from this. Let me say this. The life of living, of rejecting the word of the Lord, the life of living according to worldly wisdom and rejecting godly wisdom, the life of, uh, that ends in nasty destruction, starts with a simple rejection of the Lord, a simple dependence on self, things that don't seem all that bad. Right? There's a progression. There's a sequence of events. There's, a, there's, there's warning along the way. There's a, there's, a, there's a thought process. There's all of that. And covetousness, again, I think of our, of our nation and our culture, you could make a case that covetousness is the beginning of, in many ways, of our own moral decline, right? How much, of, how much of our moral decline can we trace back to marketing and trying to get people to move this way, and we do it by the lure of covetousness? How many, of us, how many, how many people in our culture just, as they say, follow the money, right? How many people can be sucked into a, into a, how many people can be sucked into the sewage by what we call incentives, right? Because from even from the least even to the greatest, everyone's given to covetousness. Verse eleven: For they have healed the herd of the people of the daughter of my people, slightly saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed nor do they know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall in the time of their punishment. They shall be cast down, says the Lord. Now, you insightful people, which includes all of you, you'll notice that, uh, hey, these verses sound familiar. Yes, they do. They are repeats from chapter 6, verse 14 to 15. Right? We read those uh, last week. So, yeah. Yeah chapter 14 and 15, I'm sorry, chapter 6, verse 14 and 15, the same verses that we just read. You know, when God repeats himself, it's usually for the point of emphasis, right? So I think God wants us to know these verses. God wants us to understand these. So, for, the, for they have healed the hurt of, my, of the daughter, my people, saying slightly. They've, hurt, they've healed slightly, saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. Can I just pause there for a second? You know, let's say our nation's in a moral decline, and let's say I would have some insight from the Lord, which I don't, by the way, that, you know, it's going to go down in in whatever, 40 years, right? And I give the warning from the Lord. And there are other people that say, hey, peace, peace. You know, everything's good. I'm okay, you're okay. Just whatever works for you. And we give them lots of good psychology and lots of stuff like that. You know what that does? That does bring some healing slightly. I love this wording. I love this wording. They have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly. Right? Good psychology, that heals slightly. Encouraging words heal slightly. Saying everything's going to be all right even if it isn't, that heals slightly. But the only thing that heals thoroughly is repentance. Right? And so these guys are saying peace, peace when there is no peace. They're promising uh, peace and prosperity. The reality is they continue in so much sin that they don't even know how to blush. Again, I said this last week. Think Just, just, just think for a second. Take your brains outside of like, what would happen if you were like an alien and um, We've got some good analogies going today, don't we? What if you were an alien from another planet, right? And you came into, or let's, say, let's just say this. Let's say you were able to do one of those movies where they take you back in time or move you forward in time. Like a Back to the Future in reverse kind of a movie, right? Everybody with me? Okay, good. See? Right. It worked. So, uh, and you came uh, let's say you come back from, uh, let's say you're a uh, you're, um, uh, Laura Engels Wilder, Right? You live in a little house on the prairie, right? And, and everything's utopian on the prairie, right? And you come in and somehow you're placed in 2021 America. What would you think? You'd think, take me back. Take me back. Get me out of here. You'd say, yeah, I think one of the things you might say is, these people don't even know how to blush. These people don't realize how shocking... Shocking things are, right? Because we've kind of been numb to it, right? I think this was, re- this was relevant in the days of Judah. I think it's relevant today. And sure enough, First Timothy chapter 4 promised us that this would happen. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, Notice this, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. It is possible, and this scares me frankly, it is possible to be so full of rejection of the Lord as an individual or as a society that we don't, know, that we don't even know how to blush, so much so that as Paul describes to, to Timothy, our conscience can be seared with a hot iron. Now, I can tell you this as a doctor. There are basically two kinds of burns a person can experience. There's what's called a partial thickness burn and a full thickness burn, right? In the old days, you may have like a first degree or second degree. That's partial thickness. Or a third degree is a full thickness burn. You know how you diagnose a full thickness burn? Anybody? Anybody? It doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt because you killed the nerve cells. Right? Does that speak to this verse? It doesn't hurt. You can be burned so bad. You get a sunburn, it's partial thickness burn. It hurts, right? You get third degree burn, full thickness burn, it doesn't hurt. Your skin's black, but, you're, but it doesn't hurt, right? You're charred big time but it doesn't hurt because the nerves have been killed. Listen to this. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, all of our normal stuff, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. It's possible that our consciences can get so to the point that we don't know how to blush so seared as if with a hot iron that we don't feel the pain of it anymore, right? Let that not be said of us. It may be said of our society, but let it not be said of us. Verse 13, I will surely consume them, says the Lord. No grapes shall be on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree, and the leaf shall fade, and the things that I have given them shall pass away from them. You know, this idea of grapes on the vine and figs on the fig tree, you know, I think of that as like just normal life, right? Food on the table, we might say, right? You know, maybe we take those things for granted. Yeah, I got food on the table. I'm healthy. I got peace. I live in America. Everything's good. It's a free country. All that kind of stuff, right? God says, you know, to these people, at least, yeah, they were thinking that. But you know what? The time's going to come. There's not even going to be any food on the table. There's not going to be grapes on the vine. There's not going to be figs on the tree. I'm going to surely consume them. And again, it's a heart of love that warns his people. Verse 14, why do we sit still? Assemble ourselves and let us enter the fortified cities and let us be silent there. For the Lord our God has put us to silence and given us water of gall to drink because we have sinned against the Lord. So Jeremiah here says, you know, when the Babylonians come... The only defense is really going to be to just hide in the fortified cities. Let's, you know, let's assemble ourselves and enter into the fortified cities and just sit there and hope for the best. That's the best they're going to have. That's, but that, let me tell you, that's no strategy. That's no defense to just sit there and, you know, huddle in, your, huddle in your fortified city while they've got a siege going around you for a year and a half, starving you out. That's not going to work. But That's the best they got. Why? because they rejected the word of the Lord. They rejected the word of the Lord, so they've got no defense. It's really a sad picture. Verse 15, we looked for peace, but no good came, and for a time of health, and there was trouble. The snorting of his horses was heard from Dan. The whole land trembled at the sound of of the neighing of his strong ones, for they have come and devoured the land and all that is in it. The city and those who dwell in it for behold i will send serpents among you vipers which cannot be charmed and they shall bite you says the lord so that's what's going to happen the horses you know dan was up in the north and we and we've said the babylonians are going to come out of the north so you know we're going to hear the horses all the way up in dan right all the way up in the northern part of of the northern or what was the northern kingdom and so you know we got to consider what is the sequence you know i said there's a there's sort of a path right you know there's, co- there's stuff like covetousness at the beginning of the path and at the end of the path there's stuff like you know to spread your bones out and bring total destruction right i think number one there's lots of trust in man's wisdom as opposed to god lots of lots of you know When I'm back here and I'm covetous and and living my own thing, I'm trusting in my own strength, my own wisdom, my own riches, Um, you know, it's all pretty good. You say, how's life? Oh, life's awesome. You know, everything's good. We got peace. We got, you know, we got grapes on the vines. We got figs on the fig trees. You know, everything's really, you know, pretty good. And doesn't matter that, you know, that I'm rejecting the Lord because everything's pretty good. That's kind of how it starts, Right. You know, Matthew chapter 28, verse 38 says, you know, so it was in the days of Noah, right? What's going to happen when the rapture comes? It's going to be like the days of Noah. Everybody's going to be eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, living normal life. You know, the life we want to go back to after COVID. Remember Remember what we said about what we want after COVID? We want to get back to normal. Maybe let me suggest that we don't want to get back to normal. Maybe let me say we want to wake up because let me say normal doesn't work. Let me say normal is the rejection of God in our society today. That's normal. Or maybe having a maybe having a, a a convenience god that we like to pull out when we when we need him. But not a not a true not a true worship or relationship or fellowship with God. That's normal. So you got lots of sin going on, you got lots of covetousness going on, you got a rejection of the word of the Lord, uh, you got a trust in you know, all the worldly wisdom, the worldly experts, the false prophets who proclaim peace. That's what he's talking about here. And even religious people taking God for granted. And assuming that health and wealth will always be there because we're entitled to that. Could it be that that's a piece of what we... Again... I hope I'm not too... um, Well, whatever. But could it be that that's what we got when we were a little bit indoctrinated to say that Pledge of Allegiance every morning? You know, because uh, what it means is because I'm an American, I'm secure. This nation's indivisible. Well, has this nation always been indivisible? No. 1861? 1865? It was not. Is it possible? Are are we indivisible? Are are we entitled to live and appreciate and enjoy? Are we entitled to live under the blessing of God that formed this nation forever? Are we entitled to, you know... I think if we have any kind of biblical insight, I mean, I think it's a little bit odd historically that a bunch of ragtag minutemen, I'm sorry, I don't mean to go off on history. Is it okay if I go off on history for a second? It's not my notes, but work with me. I think it's a little odd historically that a bunch of ragtag minutemen defeated, you know, the most organized and rock star army of the world, right? By shooting at them from behind bushes, right? Is that weird? You know, if you're just a strategizer, that's kind of weird. Well, why did, it, why did, why did this nation get formed? Why did, why did we win the American Revolution? Because of God's favor. Uh, personally, I think it's a no-brainer. I think it's a no-brainer. It's like, walking around those, it's like walking around Jericho seven times on the seventh day. And the walls fall down. And everybody stands around and says, Huh, well, that's curious. Right? It's not curious. It's God's favor. Fast forward a few generations. And seriously, 200 years is a few generations, if you look at history. It's a blink of an eye. And here we are a couple hundred years later saying, God who? And I say, God who shed his grace on thee. God who formed this nation. God who established this nation. And God who sustains this nation if we would serve him. But I don't think we can mock God. What's Galatians say? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. I don't think we can mock God very long and continue to expect to the entitlements that we've gotten used to. It just doesn't make sense, biblically. It makes tons of sense according to worldly experts, but it makes no sense biblically. And then, sure enough, if you look at the pages of Jewish history here, God establishes that nation, Fast forward a few generations, they reject God, God warns them, God God brings people like Jeremiah to warn them and warn them and warn them. They They reject God, act like they should still have grapes on the vine and figs on the trees. Peace, prosperity. And then they have the audacity to act surprised when the Babylonians show up. In our day, if God does bring judgment on our country, I will not be surprised. Verse 18, I would comfort myself in sorrow, he says. My heart is faint in me. Listen, the voice, the cry of the daughter of my people from a far country is not the Lord in Zion? Is not her king in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images? With foreign idols. And so he's prophetically describe, describing the cry of the daughter of my people from, from, a, for, from a far country. says from their, from their state of exile. So he's kind of picturing what you know, the people are going to be saying from Babylon. They're going to say wow. God was, God was right. God was right. Verse twenty. Look at this. You know, verse twenty is probably the simplest verse we'll read today. But think about how profound this verse is. The harvest is past. The summer is ended, and we are not saved. What's that tell me? It tells me there's a window of opportunity. Right? You ever had a garden? Right? There's a harvest time. Right? What happens, we used to have um, asparagus in our garden. And we used to go to, on vacation, there was a medical conference that we used to go to, first week of May every year. Guess when the asparagus always ripened? First week of May every year. Come home, and, you know, sometimes somebody pick them, right? But if that didn't happen, what do you come home? You come home and you find... The harvest is, opportunity is gone, right? There's a window of opportunity to get right with the Lord. There's a window of opportunity, and in the in the in the nation of Judah here, he's prophesying the time's going to come when they say the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. It's very real. There's a finite window of opportunity. all of us. Verse 21, For the hurt of the daughter of my people I am hurt, I am mourning, astonishment has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no recovery for the health of the daughter of my people? Now I want us to see this for a second. Lest you think I'm, you know, these words are harsh. Lest you think the heart of the Lord is harsh. Lest you think, you know, I don't want to be harsh right? I don't want to be frustrated. I just want to be faithful, and I think that's the heart of Jeremiah that he also models for us. In the midst, can you imagine being, having your words being rejected by everybody for 40 years, and then destruction does come, and you're, you have compassionate empathy for those people who mocked you for 40 years? Can you imagine that? This is the heart of this man, Jeremiah, He said, oh, for the hurt of my people, the daughter of my people, I am hurt. I am mourning. Astonishment has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead, no physician here where I can just like at least help mend some wounds? Why then is there no recovery for the health of the daughter of my people? I love the heart of Jeremiah. He really wants to bring healing, but he can't once that window of opportunity is gone. He can't bring the kind of healing that he wants to bring, but he wants to. Chapter 9, I'm going to read quickly, so don't worry. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes were a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. You may hear Jeremiah is referred to as the weeping prophet. You know, these, these kind of verses uh, give him that, that title. You know, it's as if he says, you know, I don't have enough tears left. It's like his grief exceeds his ability to cry. And he said, oh, that I had a place in the wilderness, a lodging place for travelers, that I might leave my people and go from them. And they are all adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men. And this is one of the reasons reasons I wanted to read chapter 9. Because I think there's something like this. When we we share these kind of chapters, and we talk about going against the flow, right? And it requires uh, the power of the Holy Spirit to do it. To fight against the tide of moral decline. I don't know about you, but there's a part of me, and frankly, this part has been alive and well in recent weeks. There's a part of me that's like, you know, I'd like to have a cabin in the woods somewhere. <laughs> you know, maybe ravens could bring me food. And I could just hang out there for a couple years and then come back to earth when it's like... Civilized again? You ever feel that way? Like I just want to—I need a time out, right? Well, did Jeremiah get one? No. Do no. we get one? No. no. You can go on vacation once in a while. That's—that's that's good. You know, you can sleep. That's good. Um, but we're never—not ministers on this earth, given a specific life. With a specific stewardship and a specific responsibility, we never, we never uh, are outside of that stewardship, ever. And like their bow, and that's why we need the power of the Holy Spirit, by the way. And like their bow, they they have bent their tongues for lies. They are not valiant for the truth on the earth. For they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, says the Lord. Everyone take heed to his neighbor and do not trust any brother. For every brother will utterly supplant, and every neighbor will walk with slanderers. Everyone will deceive his neighbor and will not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves to commit iniquity. Your dwelling place is in the midst of the deceit. Through deceit they refuse to know me, says the Lord. So notice this. Deceit and wickedness go hand in hand. So these verses are all about deceit and wickedness, and they go hand in hand. If you walk in deliberate sin, you're going to have to cover it with deceit sooner or later. On the other hand, if you live a life of deceit, you're going to be so confused on what's truth and what's falsehood that you don't know right from wrong enough to to obey right. So wickedness and deceit go hand in hand. That's why integrity must be a critical part of our obedience to the Lord. And I say that because sometimes we can say, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm doing the right thing, I'm, I'm, you know, but, uh, you know, but you know, my income tax is a little fuzzy. Don't go there. Let me just warn us. Don't go there. Don't go there. You don't need that money that bad. If you can save a thousand bucks on your taxes, let me tell you, you don't need that money that bad. And let me tell you, uh, God can give you two thousand with integrity, and He can make that thousand. You know, I love what Haggai says. You guys are working pretty hard to fill money with bags that have got holes in the bottom of them, right? That's what cheating on your taxes does. So, deceit and sin go hand in hand. Be very careful about integrity, please. Verse 7, Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and try them. For how shall I deal with the the daughter of my people? Their tongue is an arrow shot out. It speaks deceit. One speaks peaceably to his neighbor with his mouth, but in his heart he lies in wait. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? I'll take up a weeping and wailing for the mountains and for the dwelling places of the wilderness, a lamentation, because they are burned up so that no one can pass through, nor can men hear the voice of the cattle. Both the birds of the heavens and the beasts have fled. They are gone. I'll make Jerusalem a heap of ruin. A ruins a den of jackals i'll make the cities of judah desolate and without inhabitant and so you know he's saying judgment's coming his his heart is first when he says verse 7 behold i will refine them it's like god's warning comes he wants to refine us and if we don't listen then judgment comes along the way there's always opportunity for repentance and along the way finally there's warning there's warning there's warning and there's judgment And so, again, there's windows of opportunity. Who is the wise man who may understand this? And who is he to whom the mouth of the Lord has spoken that he may declare it? Why does the land perish and burn up like a wilderness so that no one can pass through? So he's asking the question, is there anyone righteous in this land? Again, we feel alone if we walk in righteousness at times. And the Lord said, Because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them, and have not obeyed my voice, nor walked according to it. But they have walked according to the dictates of their own hearts. And after the Baals, which their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed them, this people, with wormwood, and give them water of gall to drink. I will scatter them also among the Gentiles, whom neither they nor their fathers have known. And I will send a sword after them until I have consume them and so God gives the answer to, Saul, to Jeremiah's question and the question is there's a progression of man's depravity as it's as it's played out in the nation of Judah right it starts with walking according to the dictates of my own heart right what do we see if we go back to the book of Judges in early in Judah's history in Israel's history right the very last verse in the book of Judges in those days there was no king in Israel everyone did what was what right in his own eyes what are we doing in america today we're doing what's right in our own eyes that's good for you if that's good for you do it that's what's right in our own eyes we should instead do what's right according to the word of the lord and what do these people do they start they start walking according to the dictates of their own heart notice this which their fathers had taught them they pass it down from generation to generation and there's this multi-generational progression of moral decay My mind always goes back to the New Testament corollary of the sequence of depravity, and it's in Romans chapter 1, right? And it starts out, there's a fascinating verse, Romans chapter 1 says this, it's starting in verse 21, I won't read through the whole de- the whole cycle of depravity because it's even more depressing than this, but it starts out, it's fascinating where that starts out, he says, Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. So you want to prevent this you want to stop this train from rolling down down moral decline. Sometimes we we say I want to stop the train from moving down moral decline. We say, you know, I think what I need to do is make sure I don't murder anybody and don't rob banks and try to be a good boy and go to church and, you know, have a nice haircut, right? Or something crazy. I think the beginning of it is in Romans chapter 1, verse 21. Though they, did not, though they knew God, we know God. Though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful. If we glorify God as God, and what that means is you're smarter than I am, you're more sovereign than I am, you're amazing, You are God and I am not. You're the God of my life and I am not. Number one. And number two, thankful. Thank you that you're God and I'm not. Thank you for dying on a cross for me. Thank you for everything. Thank you for the grapes that are on my vine and the figs that are on my tree. Thank you for my daily provision. Thank you for taking care of me. Thank you for the health that I do have. Thank you for the nation that I'm living in that, that you have blessed. Thank you that I get to, that, seriously, lest I sound unpatriotic, thank you for this nation that I, can, that I can live in. And when I stop and say thank you for it, it is amazing that we get to live here. What a privilege. If you look at world history and world cultures, and we can live in a place like this and enjoy the freedoms that we do enjoy, all because of God's grace. Thank you. You know what that does? When we glorify God as God and we're thankful, you know what we do? We stop the cycle of moral depravity. And it seems simple, but prevention always seems simple. Right? Verse 17. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider and call for the mourning women, that they may come and send for skillful wailing women, that they may come. Let them make haste and take up a wailing for us, that our eyes may run with tears and our eyelids gush with water. See, in the ancient world, there were professional mourners. They would come and cry for you. You know, you pay them and that's their job. What do you do? I cry. My kids tell me I could do that. For a voice of wailing is heard from Zion. How we are plundered, we are greatly ashamed because we have forsaken the land, because we have been cast out of our dwellings. Yet hear the word of the Lord, O women, and let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach your daughters wailing and every one her neighbor a lamentation. For death has come through our windows, has entered our palaces to kill off the children, no longer to be outside, and the young men no longer in the streets. So what they're saying is there's going to be a good market for these people. There's going to be a good market for these professional mourners. Which is a contrary uh, message to peace, peace when there is no peace. In the days where we don't even know shame. Verse 22, speak thus says the Lord. Even the carcasses of men shall fall as refuse on the open field. Like cuttings after a harvester and no one shall gather them. There's going to be so much death and destruction, he says, that there won't even be enough people to bury them. In these last few verses, I wanted to get to these today. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches. So these last few verses are a great summary statement. What does man tend to glorify himself in? If man wants to be, again, I hope you understand, the whole point of this is we don't trust in ourselves, we don't trust in our own wisdom especially when we're living a life of sin and moral decay, right? But what do what people tend to, when people do tend to trust in themselves and elevate themselves, right, and sort of stand on their own whatever, pull themselves by their own, boot, own bootstraps and however all the sayings go, what is it? They usually glory in their wisdom, in their might, and in their riches, Right? Those are those are traps for people. They've been traps since the days of Jeremiah, they're traps today. These are the things that people tend to glory in themselves. Don't trust in your wisdom, please. Don't trust in your might. Don't trust in your riches. Now, here's the thing. Here's the challenge. Some of us have wisdom. You know, if we read James chapter 1, it's accessible to all of us. Some of us have wisdom. Some of us have some might. Some of us have some riches. Right? Well, that's okay. Just don't trust in them. Don't glory in them. Be thankful for them. Use them for God's glory. Those are, those are, those are, are things that, are, that we're stewards over. They're gifts that we're to use as a stewardship. Just don't glory in them. Don't trust in them. But, verse 24, Let him who glories, glories in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. So instead of glorying in our wisdom, our might, and our riches, we should glory in the fact that we know and appreciate the Lord, and all glory goes to Him. So when somebody's talking to us, right, hey, what's up in your world? Well, man, I am so full of riches and wisdom and might. Man, this is great, right? Or what's up in your world? God is good. God is good. God has blessed me. You know, God's, you know, blessed me how he's chosen to bless me. But God's blessed me. God lets me live in this nation for such a time as this. God gives me a church family. God gives me his word. God gives me the power of his Holy Spirit that gives me the strength to go upstream. God gives me a few resources along the way that helps me navigate that. God is good. Let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. And that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight and so should we. So should we. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I'll punish all who are circumcised with the uncircumcised. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the people of Ammon, Moab, and all who are in the farthest corners who dwell in the wilderness. For all these nations are uncircumcised. And all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart. So we've talked about circumcision in the last couple of weeks. I won't belabor it, right? But what's circumcision mean? It means religious, basically. In the Jewish mindset, what's it mean? It means I'm a religious man. I go to that temple three times a year. You know, I, I, I do all this, I do all that, and it makes me good, so that way I can go and do my, do my own sin. I had a guy I was talking to yesterday. Anyway, I was talking about, you know, medical care and, and all this, and he says, you know, how many of your patients, you know, want, you know, take good care of themselves, we'll say because he takes good care of himself. He said, how many are like me? And I said, too many of them say, so what pill can I get and still keep eating all the Big Macs I want? (laughs) Right? That's how many people approach healthcare. right? Why do you go to the doctor? For advice on how to, like, what are the various ways to cut up your kale? No. How can I keep eating my Big Macs and get away with it. Right? That's what they're doing here. Hey, I'm circumcised. It's like the pill. That allows me to eat whatever Big Mac I want. If you eat Big Macs, that's... I start to say it's not a sin. I'm not so sure it's not. But anyway, if you eat, you know, circumcision doesn't do it. Right? The pill that tries to help you digest your Big Macs doesn't do it. So in those days, he says, circumcised, uncircumcised, really doesn't matter. What matters is, what's the last word we read today? Heart. Heart. What's the heart? The heart is to love and serve the Lord. To not trust in our own selves, to glory in Him, in Him alone. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the warnings of these pages. Lord, they're heavy. And they're they're hard in ways, and they're not necessarily fun in ways. But Lord, they're so rich. Your words are so rich. Your warnings are so relevant. Your man Jeremiah was so faithful and that's such an encouragement to us, Lord, that if he could be faithful, then maybe we could by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we thank you that you've given us all that we need for life and godliness. You've given us the Holy Spirit. You've given us your word. You've given us the examples of history and of faithful men who've gone before us. And so, Lord, we thank you for all of that. Help us to, help us to be thankful. Help us to regard you as God. Help us to not do what's right in our own eyes. Help us to have the strength to go against the flow. And help us to glory in you, and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week. Stay strong.